Well, good morning, everybody. And let me start off by saying that this is definitely not the format that I wanted to communicate through this morning. However, given the current weather conditions at Old Providence, that's not doing much right now, but the news reports online said that elevations over 2,000 feet would freeze. That's Old Providence. I think there's a 90% chance of things happening um, at between 10 and 11 o'clock. And so we wanted to be on the safe side and the worship committee made the call last night around seven o'clock. Even so, I am grateful for technology, especially when it works. And hopefully this will work today. I'm grateful for almost all technology, except when bells go off. Isabella, run in there underneath the machine in that room, unplug the bells. You can do it. I have faith in you. Speaking of Isabella, it's kind of a skeleton crew here today, but a happy few. Um, Isabella just ran back to unplug the bells, and we've got Martha and my lovely wife, Amanda. Nobody else. Now, we might have some visitors roll in at the last minute here or a couple of minutes after, and that's one of the reasons I'm here today. But I'm glad to be with you. Format for today is simple. Don't worry. There won't be any special music, no solos coming for me or anything like that. Instead, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to preach, and then we will be done. Now, it is my hope that next week we can be back together again without any sort of interruption. But thank you for your understanding. Let's now go to the Lord in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you so much for this time that you have given to us for the opportunity, for the ability to come together, albeit in a uh, electronic format. It's certainly better than, than nothing this morning. And uh, we praise you for it. And I pray that it would actually work and that there wouldn't be interruptions and that everybody who's watching would be able to see it just fine. So please protect our technology and protect our hearts today as we are not gathered together like we would normally be. We praise you that you are sovereign over all things, including the weather. We know from Job that you keep your snow and ice in storehouses to be released when you will it. Um, and right now that may or may not happen. Um, but nevertheless, we are grateful that you're the one that's in control and that we don't have to know the future. We just have to trust in you. I pray that you would be with us this morning and uh, all those that are struggling within our midst. We think of Maddie Marsh, especially uh, Maddie Montgomery. Um, as she is recovering from surgery, we thank you for the good progress she has made. And we pray that you would continue to help her with that and that she would be home soon. We pray for Dale as he continues to struggle. And we ask that you would be with him, with doctors, with Perry, with this whole situation. That you would work your will. We pray for others who are struggling. As COVID rages out there, we ask that you would be with those, give them healing, and please, again, Father, bring us all back together again soon. And yet, we know that we do not only struggle with the physical. For those that are grieving, that are mourning the loss of loved ones, we pray for comfort. For those that are struggling with life, we pray for reassurance and a special measure of grace. Uh, with those that are facing difficulty, of any variety, and it can be so many. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would guide, that you would give perspective, and that your will would be done as they seek your face first and foremost, your kingdom first, with the understanding that all things would be added to them. Now, Father, I pray for not only our church in general, but for your church around the world, 
Unite us together as we do your work. Let us do what is pleasing to you and let your name be glorified so that the world around us would come to know you. I pray these and all things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, it is a delight to be with you in this format. Now, let me just tell you that as soon as I got the cancellation notice, or as we uh, elders and I talked about canceling, I got to tell you, I started scrambling last night. My, my mind went back and forth and back and forth over what I should prepare for this morning. And no, that's not because I hadn't written a sermon as of 7 p.m. last night. It's just that I know that while many of you can be here in an online format, not all of you can. And we're in the midst of a regular study on John chapter 14 on what it means that the Holy Spirit is the comforter and the spirit of truth and so forth. And what I didn't want to do is just blaze forward, right, and, and preach the sermon that I had prepared for today and have so many folks miss it. And plus, I wanted to be able to use the screen and, and so forth. Now, that being said, again, I'm in the church today in case visitors show up who had not gotten our one call or viewed our Facebook page or watched the news this morning, which, for future reference, if there's a possibility of winter weather, and it looks like most did that, Stay tuned, and, and for our regulars that may not be church members or on our one-call system, if you want to be, let us know, and, and we can get you hooked up with that. But nevertheless, I didn't want to just continue on in that series with the possibility that folks would not be able to view that sermon, and then the next week have to review everything, and well, that's why I started scrambling in knowing what I should prepare. So I pondered what choice I should make right? 66 books of the Bible, so much availability. And as I started to say, well, what will I choose? That's when it came to me, that today I should talk about choice, choices, making wise decisions. If you recall, at the start of the year, I preached on James chapter 4 and on how to go forward into the future, namely that we should not adopt the worldly understanding and the worldly mindset that we're just the masters of our own destiny, that we'll do this, or maybe we'll do that, or we'll make money here, or we'll do that there, and all the while not pay any attention to God, all the while not recognizing or desiring that God's will be done. When you do that, you do what James 4, 15, and 16 says. James says there, instead of following that worldly pattern, instead you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And this is it. When we follow the world's mindset about the future, about just going forward, when we don't think about what God desires for us to do, when we don't seek his kingdom first, verse 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And doesn't that make sense, y'all? Again, I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. I talked about this when I preached on James chapter 4. But if you proceed through life and your only desire is to do what you want to do, if you don't care about what God has for you, if you don't recognize God's work in your life, well, y'all, don't be surprised if every area, every facet of your life, becomes all about you. And that is evil. That level of selfishness, that level, even not just for not caring about God, it's contempt towards God, knowing that he's your creator and you don't care what he wants for you. 
knowing that he loves you. You don't desire to do what he desires for you. So that's what we talked about right at the turn of year um, in terms of how we go forward into the future. Very clearly, our desire for our life should be based on what God desires for our lives, right? If God is sovereign and powerful, and he is, if God loves us, and he does, we should be focused on what God wants. But here's the thing, and this is where we pick up today. What about the specifics of life? Uh, that's kind of the 10,000 foot view, right? That we should proceed through life doing what God desires for us to do. But how do we know specifically when it comes time to make a decision? When it comes time to plan for the future, how do we know what God wants us to do? What should our decision-making process be? Are we to wait for the clouds to form into the shape of a message directly from God? No, no, that is not how God works. As the author of one of my favorite hymns wrote, and I'd like to tell you the author's name, but he or she for whatever reason, remains nameless because the author of How Firm a Foundation simply referred to him or herself with the letter K, right? No last name, no elaboration, just K. But as the author to How Firm a Foundation wrote in that great hymn, they wrote, what more can he, talking about God, what more can he say than to you he hath said? The point is that you have the word of God. And not only that, you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you to guide you, to teach you, to, to remind you of God's Word. I need to be careful here because that's going to be our focus next week when we come back together and focus on the Holy Spirit. But you have these things. So you're not going to get some sign in the sky about the specifics of what God wants you to do or about which decision you ought to make. So that being the case, how do you choose? Well, the answer to this question, and many others like it, are contained throughout the scriptures, but especially they are revealed or pointed to in the book of Romans. So, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. So, go ahead um, and, and turn there with me now. Romans chapter 14. Now, some background for you. While there are many opinions on why Paul wrote the letter to the Christians at the church in Rome, certainly among them is that Paul is seeking to clearly lay out the basis of his theology and teachings. One of the best explanations for why Paul wrote the Romans is that in the midst of his missionaries' journeys, he's, he's trying to raise support, specifically support for his trip, uh, missions trip, to the Jews in Jerusalem. And so what Paul is doing here is he's laying out to the Romans what message he is going to carry with him to Jerusalem and elsewhere, for that matter. And in doing so, he really explains a lot about how Christianity works. Now, I should note that Paul isn't just revealing his theology as if his theology is different from Luke or, or John's or Peter's. Realize, y'all, when we turn to Romans, this is the word of God that we are reading, okay? So as ideas are presented, they're not just Paul's ideas. No, instead, God's word and God's will is revealed in Romans along with how things work theologically, biblically, practically speaking. Now, where we're going to be today, again, is Romans chapter 14. And it's important to understand before we even read it where this chapter is situated. Romans 1 through 8 
just speaking in very broad terms, right? It lays out a detailed presentation of not only what the gospel is, but why the gospel is, why we need the gospel, the state of the world, the state of the individual, and so forth, okay? We learn about the wages of sin. We learn about condemnation. We learn that God's wrath is being poured out because people have rejected him. All of those things in Romans 1 through 8. Romans 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11, they focus on God's attributes. Specifically, they focus on the doctrines of grace, the attribute of God's sovereignty, election, predestination, all of these things. But overall, the focus is on God's will and also God's right as our creator. Remember, he is the creator. We are the created. He has dominion over his creation. That means all of us. Okay, so that's what 9 to 11 focuses on. And for good measure, a whole lot is revealed in chapter 11 about ethnic Jews and what's going to happen with them. And I'm not even going to get into that today, but Romans 11 focuses on that. But then the rest of the book of Romans, where we are today, it covers an array of topics, but really focuses on the overall concepts of Christian living uh, in terms of personal theology, in terms of what you believe about God but also very practically in terms of how we interact with one another as the followers of Christ, okay? And Romans 14 is nestled in the midst of this. And and the focus of the chapter, if you're there, you might have a little heading, which is not inspired but helpful. It might say something like the law of liberty, okay? But really, chapter 14 is about Christian liberty. It's about what you can do as a believer. It's about why you should do what you do. And it's in the midst of that discussion that so many marvelous and important truths are revealed, okay? Including one very important implication is how to make decisions, okay? How to choose what to do. Now, with that in mind, again, Romans 14, let's pray, and then we will read. Father, please be with us now. Again, very different format, and yet we are here, and we are grateful for it. Please guide us now by your Holy Spirit that we would have ears that hear, eyes that see, hearts that are open and ready to understand, and that, Father, this would be glorifying to you. Please guide us now by your Holy Spirit, and we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 14, we're going to start reading our passage then we're going, to re- we're going to read through verse 12, and then we're going to stop, and then we'll finish the rest later. But for a start, Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. It says, Welcome anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not judge one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands and falls. And he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. 
Verse 6, whoever observes the day observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And we'll stop reading right there for the moment. May God bless the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen and amen. Now, so, after reading this first portion of the chapter, y'all, I hope you saw many, many principles are set up that apply to so many situations. Now, I realize you may be scratching your head at me saying this. I know that, that for many of you, it's not like you're having discussions or constant debate over which foods you're allowed to eat, to eat and, and which foods you shouldn't eat. You're not debating over which Jewish festivals you ought to follow and which ones you shouldn't or anything like that. I get that. But realize that when our passage speaks of these things, there are still principles that are revealed that apply to us. But before I even get there, let me, let me just describe what's going on here. Realize when our passage speaks of, of eating meat and not eating meat, clean and unclean foods, this isn't talking about the cleanliness in the kitchen and so forth or, or food sanitation practices. No, no, no. This is all about religious practice. I just alluded to it already. Namely, this points to the Old Testament. Right. There were dietary laws about what types of meat you could eat and even what cuts of meat you could eat, how the meat was butchered and so forth. Uh, and other things, too. Right. Um, that meant bacon wrapped shrimp, as Ron Swanson said, my number one food wrapped around my number three food in the Old Testament. That's out. You can't have bacon because it's from pork. Right. Pigs. You can't have shrimp because it's shellfish. Right. That, that's what this is referring to here. And in Virginia. Man, ham and oysters, right? Couldn't have either one of those in the Old Testament. But nevertheless, that's this is not about physical cleanliness, y'all. It's not about hygiene. This discussion is about eating based on religious dietary laws on one hand. And on the other hand, it's also talking about meat different sacrifice to idols. Realize in the Roman Empire, all sorts of god and goddess pagan worship out there. People, the, the basic practice was you would dedicate meat to idols, right? And then after they sacrificed it, they'd sell the meat in the marketplace. Well, for some Christians, they said, we can't eat this. It's been sacrificed to this God, to this goddess. If I eat this meat, it's like I'm, I'm agreeing with this. Other Christians said, who cares? It, it, it's, it's just meat. It, it, just because you eat this meat, it doesn't mean that you support that. Now, before you say, well, that's just wild. There's a debate in Christianity today, right? Or I can't go to this restaurant because they support fill in the blank. Um, <laughs> I have a pastor friend, and I'm not going to say his name here. I don't want to get him in trouble. But he said, 
I don't care if there's a statue of Baphomet outside of a restaurant. If they have good food, I'm going to go in and I'm going to eat it. And it's not that he's profane or anything, but he follows this principle where some Christians said, it doesn't matter what you eat, right? And those idols, those gods and goddesses are false. It doesn't matter if somebody else paid for the meat to be sacrificed. Eat what you want to eat. Jesus said that everything is clean. Peter had his vision, right? And there was a big debate over that. What can I eat? What can't I eat? So realize this is not about cleanliness, right? It, it, it's about religious principalism, right? Okay. Realize our passage also has nothing to do with being a vegetarian, with being a vegan. I, I know that verse two says that some eat meat and others only eat vegetables. This is not anything like that. Okay. So don't, don't read that into this. Um, so, so I know, again, you may not be engaged in conversations about this stuff on a regular basis concerning dietary laws and religious principles, but there are still principles that apply from this discussion. And not only does Paul talk about the matters of what you eat, he also talks about recognizing certain days. He's talking there about recognizing religious festivals. And there are some that say, hey, these religious festivals that were set down in the Old Testament, we still have to practice Passover. We still have to do this, that, the other. It's fascinating that some of these people practice Hanukkah, which you don't really see in the Old Testament, but I digress. I'm not even going there. Yo, the point is, is that some people say you got to recognize these things. Other people say, no, that... If you're looking for a holiday, right, if you're looking for a day that's celebrated, there's 52 of them in a year. It's called the Lord's Day, Sunday. That, that's, that's the day that we celebrate. Holidays are cultural, nothing religious. Again, there is a debate over this. And with the same measure that Paul said, some people say they can eat whatever they want. Some people say they can only eat vegetables. As we just read, he said, some people say that certain days have to be recognized. Some people say that every day is just like every other day. The principles that are revealed here still apply to where we are. Tell you why. While we may not argue over what food we're permitted to eat, each person has his or, own, or, his or her own convictions about what is good and right and true. What is permissible for Christians and what isn't? I'll give you an example. I just used one a moment ago, right? The kind of restaurants you can support, the kind of things that you can, uh, businesses you can go to, that's one. I'll give you another one that's rather controversial. Take, for instance, the, the subject of alcohol consumption. Now, this can be a very controversial topic. Some Christians say Christians should not drink, period, end of discussion, it's sinful to drink, despite the fact that the Bible doesn't say that. And y'all, I'm not trying to be controversial, but the Bible very clearly says in Ephesians 5 and so many other places that the sin is not drinking alcohol. The sin is being a drunk, right? Becoming drunk with much fun. That's what the Bible says. Even so, some Christians say, well, I know it says don't be drunk, but, but we should never drink at all, period, because that just leads to bad things and it is sinful to drink. Other Christians, however, may say, well, wait a minute. Jesus drank alcohol. Christians in the New Testament drank alcohol very clearly because he couldn't drink the water. It was disease. There are people all throughout the scriptures drank alcohol. So you can't really say drinking's 
a sin because Jesus would be guilty of sin. And besides that, the sin is being a drunk. I can have a glass of wine or a beer or whatever it is they may like, and they can say, it's not sinful for me to do this. Now, there are other examples that we could point to that point to similar conflict over what we call Christian liberty. What you can do, what you can't do with these gray areas. Let me say up front, y'all, we're talking about the gray areas, okay? It's never right to murder someone. It's never right to steal things that don't belong to you. When God's law is very clearly defined, it ain't a gray area, okay? There's no debating those things. I, I talk to young people sometimes. They're like, is it wrong for me to drink alcohol? Yes. And then they might say, well, wait a second. The Bible doesn't say that you shouldn't drink. It says that uh, you shouldn't be a drunk. Yeah, it's interesting how kids can become Bible scholars. But the answer to that is, Yes, but the law of the land says you can't drink until you're 21. So it's illegal to drink for you. So it is right. There is no gray area with things like that. Okay, But in life, in terms of the choices we make, in terms of the activities that we engage in, the entertainment we use, again, what we eat, what we drink, what we do with our time, there are lots of gray areas over what the right thing to do might be, what the wise thing to do might be, what you're allowed to do and what you aren't allowed to do. And again, this is where a principle is laid out for us in Romans 14. And that principle is one of conscience and one of the fact that God is the one who judges. Listen to verses three and four again. They say, one who eats must not look down on one who does not eat. And one who does not eat must not judge one who does, because God has accepted him. And then Paul asks this question, and this gets to the heart of the matter. He says, who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls, and he will stand, because the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, you might say here, ooh, that makes me uncomfortable. Paul's attitude is a little flippant here. Paul doesn't take sin seriously. If he did, he wouldn't did he wouldn't say things so loosey-goosey like this. Well, if that's you, then don't laugh because I've heard that argument before. But if that's your attitude, then let me just point out two things. Number one, yes, Paul is the author to the letter to the Romans, but this is God's word, y'all. So don't give me any of this business about Paul's attitude, because this is not Paul's attitude on display. This is God's attitude, and I can assure you that God is not loosey-goosey about sin, okay? But also number two, if you find yourself on some sort of moral high horse because you've got all these rules that you've created for yourself that you can't find in the Bible, just in case you possibly maybe won't sin, if you're on some moral high horse because you think you're more serious about rules and regulations and other people, you may even think you're more serious about this than Paul, then realize what God says about people like that. Verse 2, one person believes he may eat, may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. According to God's word, it's not the Christians who add a bunch of rules to the Bible that are the strong ones. In fact, those are the weak ones the one who says, I can't eat that, it's unclean, or I can't do that, it isn't permissible, and so forth. It's those who add the rules that struggle. 
really and truly. Now, this is not for this sermon, but y'all, I grew up in the shadow of ultra, ultra legalism. And no, I'm not talking about my old household. I'm not talking about the church that I grew up in. I'm talking about the location that I was in, in Greenville, South Carolina. There was an institution that I'm not going to name that considers itself the last bastion of faith for Christianity. Maybe not so much now, but certainly at the time it did. In fact, the biography about the founder of it is called Fortress of Faith, okay? Or at least one of them, okay? And then this institution created all of these rules that you can't find anywhere in the scriptures. And let me just say, the emperor has no clothes because so much corruption took place. And again, I'm, I'm not going to get into the disaster that is legalism. But if you're adding a bunch of rules to the Bible, realize there's only one group that you can identify with in the scriptures. There's only one group named that added a whole bunch of rules to the Bible. They were the Pharisees. You dig? So I'm just going to leave that. I'm, I'm going to let that pregnant thing just lay right there on the table. I'm going to pull the pin on that hand grenade and roll it out there, and then I'm going to change the subject. It will be clapping for me. Uh, you know, if you're on the other side of this, because let me tell you, if you're clapping for me and say, yeah, you get those legalists, the ones that say I can't do this or can't do that. Don't clap because realize the very next verse, uh, those people that say, well, I can do this. I can do that. They're told to not look down on their brothers or sisters. See, it can be either way. If you have a bunch of rules, you can very easily judge somebody that says, yeah, I can do this or I can do that. But at the same time, if you have that sense of liberty, you can very much become angry with the people that say you don't have the right to do what you're doing. That's why the paradigm for Christian living that we've already read is that we all belong to the Lord. You know, we're not to judge each other in terms of these gray areas, right? We, we do judge each other by fruit, okay? This is not the judge not lest ye be judged thing. Uh -uh, that doesn't apply here. The principle is we all belong to God, and God's the one who judges us, not each other. That's why in verses 7 and 8 we read, For none of us lives for himself, and no one who dies dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And this is why verse 12 says what it does, where, which is where we stopped reading. It says, So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, that's the paradigm. You might be saying to yourself, okay, great, that, that's wonderful. Don't judge other believers about their convictions. Check. But Patrick, what does this have to do with what you said we would talk about? What does this have to do with decision-making and knowing what God wants me to do? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad that you asked. Um, maybe Amanda or Bella or Martha asked that. I didn't hear you if you did. But if so, wonderful question. Let's keep reading in Romans 14, because in the rest of the chapter, we get so much more application of these principles. Verse 13 and following, therefore, 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 because of what we just read in verses 1 through 12. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one, it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. 
Therefore, do not let your good be slandered. For the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Now we're going to stop reading there for just a moment, but did you catch the application of what we started reading this morning? Right? Of, of the first section that he read. Verse 13 says, Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide to never put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. Y'all, this principle that I've been alluding to is revealed here, and it's presented at first by saying, don't, don't look down on one another for the choices that you make regarding these matters of Christian liberty. But second, don't tempt other people by your choices. That's that language about laying a stumbling block or digging a pitfall. The idea of a stumbling block is something that you put in another person's path that will make them trip. A pitfall is a hole that you dig that they can fall into. Now, practically speaking, if you know a believer, what does this look like? Take, for instance, if you know a believer who thinks that alcohol is sinful, don't judge them for that. Don't look down on them for that conviction. And at the same time, don't drink in front of them. Don't invite them to go have a drink with you. Because when you do so, you lead them to be in a spot where they will be tempted to judge you. Or even worse, you lead them to a spot where they will be tempted to do something they shouldn't do. And it's that last thing that's so important, y'all. Because the most important principle of this passage that is so often overlooked is revealed in the very last verse of the chapter. Look at Romans 14, 23. He says, but whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And everything that is not from faith is sin. This goes along with verse 5 that we already read. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. And this is it. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. You see, being fully convinced in his own mind or in your own mind that you're doing the right thing goes perfectly with making sure that you don't act in doubt. Now, this is a good translation. This is the CSB. I prefer the NIV, 1984, because it simply says, the one who doubts sins. Do you see the point? Look, if you know somebody, let's, let's go along with this metaphor again. If you know somebody has a problem with something that is a gray area in life, like alcohol, going back to that hypothetical scenario, and you drink in front of them, you're not only tempting them to judge you again, 
you are tempting that person to violate his or her own conscience. To go against verse 5, to go against verse 23, to act in doubt. That's the issue here. And the principle, the, the truth revealed in Romans 14, 23, is that it doesn't matter what it is. If you act in doubt, if you choose to do something and you don't know if God would permit you to do it, if you don't know if God's word allows it, if you don't know that God wants you to do it, you're guilty of sin. Now, I realize you might hear this and say, well, wait a second. Patrick, are you saying that what's sin for one person may not be sin for another person? That goes through your mind. Forget about me because this isn't about me. This, this is God's word. And yes, that, that's, that's exactly what God's word is saying. Because look, y'all, sin is not as simple as a list. That's one of the things that Jesus said to the Pharisees. Look, you're the sons of hell and you're making for yourself more sons of hell because they added all these rules. Sin is not as simple as a list. Sin oftentimes is based on the conscience. And for one person, something may be a sin, but for another person, it may not be. And again, let me be clear. That does not apply to the clearly articulated commands of God's word, his clear laws. It's never right to steal, to murder, to lie, and so forth. This is talking about Christian liberty. This is talking about the choices that you make, about what you do with your life. And the issue is that if you doubt whether or not God wants you to do something, but then you go ahead and do it anyway, you're guilty of sin. Why, though? Well, it's kind of like this. Go down this hypothetical scenario with me. I'll make another one. This is like a child, right, wandering in the kitchen, and he looks up on the kitchen counter, and he sees the cookie jar. Now, his mother's not anywhere in the room for him to ask or not ask. He's been allowed to eat cookies in the past. His mother didn't say, all right, Johnny, this has nothing to do with Johnny Earhart, but his mother doesn't say, all right, Johnny, I made cookies, they're in the jar, but don't eat them because you'll spoil your dinner. His mother hasn't told him that he couldn't have one. In the past, he's been allowed to get a cookie if he wanted a cookie, but he looks at that jar, and then he looks at the clock on the stove, and he says, it's five o'clock. We usually eat dinner around six. I know mom has told me not to spoil my dinner. And I think she did tell me that before I have a snack, I need to ask her. But she didn't tell me I couldn't have it. And then the child goes back and forth. Let's say little Johnny reaches up in that cookie jar and he takes a cookie and he eats it. Is he guilty of sin? Well, according to Romans 14, 23 and Romans 14, 5, Yes, he is. Why? Because whether his mother would have allowed it or not, it doesn't matter at that point. Johnny has acted in rebellion, you see. Johnny went ahead and did something not knowing if it was good or right or true. Johnny decided to do something not knowing if he had permission to do it. And so he acted in doubt. He acted in rebellion. And yes, I know that I'm just talking about a cookie, but y'all, it's the principle that applies. It can apply to any decision that you face in life in a gray area. Should you make this purchase? 
Should you buy this house? Should you take this job? Should you make this friend? I mean, there's all kinds of areas where if you just blaze forward, this is the James chapter four principle that I alluded to in my sermon weeks ago, uh, preached on in my sermon weeks ago that I alluded to at the start of this sermon. If you just blaze forward and you don't think about God or even worse, if you're not sure that God wants you to do something and then you just go ahead and do it, that's an act of rebellion. It's a violation of your own conscience. That same scenario, Johnny has a sister named Susie. Susie knew her mother baked cookies. She walked into the living room where her mother's vacuuming and said, Mom, can I have a cookie? Yes, you can. If Susie walked in that kitchen and got a cookie out of the jar, it wouldn't be sinful for her to eat the cookie, but it is for Johnny. You see how this works, y'all? Now, you may still be saying, okay, great, I'm, I'm tracking with you, preacher. I get what you're saying about Christian liberty, but what does this have to do with decision-making? Well, my friends, apply these principles to the decisions of your life. As you go through life, you're confronted with decisions, and, and you have to ask yourself about the options that you have. Let's say you have three options. You can do option A, option B, or option C. The first question, based on these principles, you should ask is, well, are any of these options sinful? Am I only doing option C because I'm greedy? Or because I don't like this person? Or if it's sinful, then option C is no longer an option. All right? Because if it's sinful, God does not want you to do it. Let me tell you, I hear all the time, people make decisions, and then they justify it, and they say, well, I prayed about it. And I have a peace about it. Or sometimes people go so far as to say, well, God told me that this is the road I should go down. Let me tell you something, right? If your conclusion involves breaking God's law or doing something sinful, you might have had a conversation with somebody, but it wasn't God. And somebody might have told you to do it. But I guarantee you it was not God because God never, ever condones what his word forbids. And God would never Ever guide you in a place in life that would violate his word, his law, his commands, your conscience, wisdom, any of those things. God doesn't work that way. So if something is sinful, you're not to do it. I'm not to do it. That's the way it works. So if you got options A, B, and C, and option C clearly involves sin, option C is no longer an option anymore. But let's say you got option A and B left. Which one do I choose? You might say, well, how else am I to decide this? Again, go to the principle here where we are commanded to not lay a stumbling block before others and to not dig a pitfall for anybody to fall into. Number one, ask yourself, does this decision involve me sinning? Does this choice involve me sinning? If it does, it's not an option. But then ask if by choosing this, Will I be leading someone else to sin? And y'all realize I'm not saying, will you disappoint somebody? There's a big difference between disappointing somebody and leading someone to sin. Very practically speaking, if you're, in a, if you're married and you feel gung-ho about something and your wife doesn't, or vice versa, if the wife feels gung-ho and the husband doesn't, to just proceed forward, you are being a stumbling block. You're causing them to sin. It's not an option. Don't do it, right? First question, does it cause me to sin? Second question, when you face a decision, will it cause somebody else to sin? But let's just say 
option A and B are still on the table, you say, it's not going to make me sin. doesn't involve sin. It's not going to lead others to sin. So what do you choose? You got option A and B left. Which should you choose? How do you know what God's will is? What if you pick the wrong one? My friends, based on the principles revealed in Romans 14 and the liberty that we have that's revealed here, if you have two options in front of you, three options, no matter how many options you have, and they don't involve you sinning or causing somebody else to sin, if you can't distinguish that one of them is wiser than the others, they are true options that lie before you. Do what you want to do. Do what you want to do. And don't worry about God being around the corner waiting to swat you because you happen to choose the wrong thing. And I say this because of the principle laid forth in verse 14. In it, it's written, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, that one, to that one it is unclean. You see the implication for this in decision-making? If you take verse 14 there, and you combine it with so many other passages, John 8, 36, for instance, where Jesus says, if the Son of Man sets you free, you're free indeed. If you combine these ideas of the freedom that we have in Christ, then you can do what you want. It's really okay. Because let me tell you something. With God's word as the principle, with the Holy Spirit to guide you, if you're relying on the Holy Spirit, what you want to do, if it's truly an option, is what God will allow you to do and wills you to do. That's his love for you. That's the freedom that we have in Christ. This is why Christianity isn't just about what happens when you die. It's about what happens today. You've been given this freedom. Use it. God isn't lurking, waiting for you to mess up. This Do what you want. But make sure that you have no doubts. That's what God wants you to do. And if you're struggling knowing what God wants, well then, my friends, go back to the basics. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The Christian life is all about us walking with the Lord, you see. Because in him we have freedom, we have assurance, but we have the spirit to guide us, his word to inform us, and God loves you just that much. If you know him, bask in that love and have courage as you make decisions. If you don't know him, turn to him today and you too can cherish liberty. You can cherish life and you can point to the goodness of knowing God, the sweetness of knowing him, but it will only be in Christ Jesus. I hope that this helps you make good decisions in the future. Does it cause you to sin? Does it cause others to sin? Finally, what do you want to do? Because you have that freedom. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time that you have given to us. Thank you for the technology. I pray that it has worked. And if not, 
I've enjoyed this time <laughs> just the same with, with we four in here. I pray that you would be with us, make your word real to us and for us, not just an idea, but let us apply these things. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to thank you all for being here with us this morning. I can see that some of you have commented. There's Marianne and Alice. Good morning. And Helen. And there's my mother, Kathy C. Malfers from South Carolina. And there's Jack and Patsy. Good morning. And Betty and my good friend Wayne. Again, thank you. And I know a lot of you are watching that haven't commented. Thank you for being here. Lord willing, we'll be here tomorrow morning with daily devotionals at 7 a.m. And Lord willing, we'll be back in person next week at 10 a.m. All activities are canceled today. No youth group, no session meeting, no deacons meeting. Enjoy time together. Hope you all have a good and safe day.